0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brian Showman and I am joined today by functional medicine doctor Brad Watts. Brad and I had a fascinating conversation today all about simple lifestyle changes that we can do to improve our health, decrease the risk of these chronic diseases that we end up with, improve our performance, improve our hormone levels, even yes, those testosterone levels. And ultimately, create more resilient, robust humans in ourselves. I think every single person listening to this can find some very valuable information in what Brad has to share. So let's tune in. Brad, thank you for joining me today. How are you?
1: I am doing very well and I'm glad to be here. So, you're welcome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, awesome. I'm excited to get you on here. We had a good conversation on the phone. I learned a lot about what you do, how you got to where you are um, as far as the nutrition direction with things. So, I mm-hmm. um, just wanted you to give a little bit of a background because that was not your first direction with things. So, where did you start and how did you get to what you're doing today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I started out as a strength and conditioning specialist after college. And um, when I was in the training world for a little while, working with athletes and teams, sports teams, that type of thing. And one of the things that I found out is, is that some people can lose weight and some people can't, even though they put in the same amount of work. And that was interesting to me. So I went the natural route after that. I went to chiropractic school, learned all the biomechanics and all that kind of stuff. But more importantly, I got hooked on nutrition near the end of my education. And so I've been there for about a decade now in what we call functional medicine or clinical nutrition world. And, uh, and it's been fun. It's been a little wild, but it's been fun.
0: Explain. We, get, we hear the functional medicine wording a lot with people, but I think a lot of people don't actually know what that is. So what is functional medicine as a, at its core?
1: Absolutely. What, what functional medicine is, is a way of looking at the body. It's just a way of relating to health and healing. And so instead of being concerned with a diagnosis like diabetes, let's say, I want to know why is diabetes there more than I want to talk about diabetes, right? Diabetes is the result. I want to know why. Sometimes it's inflammation. Sometimes it's an infection. Sometimes it's a combination of both. And um, and it's ultimately about diagnostics, understanding the why, and then being able to handle those, those issues that are building toward the diagnosis.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So So doing functional medicine, what can someone expect to experience differently than what they go just to a regular physician?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It's more about lifestyle than it is about pharmaceutical intervention. And there are plenty of of functional medicine practitioners in the country that participate from a pharmaceutical perspective. And, And that's not wrong or right or anything like that. It's just what they do. The problem is is that typically with modern medicine if you get a diagnosis of a chronic disease you're going to be using that medication for the rest of your life and ultimately my goal and my job is to let your body express health and healing rather than just maintaining the status quo with a chronic disease and so you can expect lifestyle change certainly going to point people in a a direction like you do with training and physical activity and proper mechanics And in all of that, additionally, looking at how they eat and putting good food in and and understanding that what they put in, ultimately, they're going to get out of their physiology. So I like, basically, if I talk functional medicine with people, I just tell them, it's your DNA plus your lifestyle that gives you your health outcome. And only one of those is going to change. (laughs) And it's usually the lifestyle. So,
0: Absolutely. How much does lifestyle play into hormones? And then how much do those hormones play into a lot of these chronic diseases that we deal with?
1: Um, they are like cousins. And, and I say that because uh, they're so interrelated that to separate hormones from lifestyle, hormone expression from lifestyle, or chronic disease expression from lifestyle would be ultimately wrong. And what's interesting is that in the 80s, We didn't know any of this stuff, right? You got a couple of people that are like the rogue doctors in the eighties and they start talking about, well, what you eat actually determines your hormone expression and your hormones are going to ultimately point you toward or away from chronic disease. And all of those people, they got ridiculed like crazy in the eighties. And then in the nineties, you start to wake up to it. And now almost every doctor in America understands that your lifestyle is going to help or hurt level of hormone that you produce. So like for diabetes, just an interesting one. It's easy. There's so many people that have diabetes in the United States today, but if all you eat are potato chips and rice, you are going to have higher levels of insulin and it's a fat storing hormone in the long run, that insulin, you're going to become resistant to it. And, uh, and it's irritating. It's a very damaging hormone in high concentrations to the body. And so if we look at like health and fitness industry, you got this thing right now where a lot of people are trying to take testosterone boosters or use testosterone itself, which there's a time and place for it. But one of the things that you find is, is that you can also become resistant to testosterone. And so you feel like you have a lack of testosterone, even though you have twice as much as a normal human being (laughs) and, uh, and you continue to crave and need more and more. And we end up storing this stuff and, uh, and hormones specifically, they're made out of fat, right? They have a cholesterol backbone. And, and usually if we don't process these hormones and we store them, you're storing them in a fat cell. So just like a water balloon, you put more water in it, right? It gets bigger. The same thing with a fat cell. And so as you look at some of these chronic diseases that are fat storing issues, almost all of them are related to hormone concentration,
0: what you said led me in a couple of different directions. The first one I want to address is: so these store in in our fat cells. What happens to with people who are on these? Like they're still stuck in this kind of low fat diet, fat where like fat eating fat scares them. Um, mm-hmm. What happens to those people when they kind of avoid those fats?
1: Absolutely uh, decimates their metabolism, and the reason is is that. In order for you to be able to have proper liver detoxification or like let's say you're drinking water and you don't know what's in your water, right? It's not just H2O. There's a bunch of other trash in it. But you have to be able to get rid of the excess content. Maybe it's chlorine. Maybe it's rat poison, which you find a lot out in the the countryside. But the point is is that you can't detoxify if you don't have fat in your diet. And the reason is that your body will process through the liver all of these these, things you're trying to get rid of these toxic elements, and you have to turn them into bile in order to get rid of them. Your body will not create bile appropriately if you don't eat dietary fat. Fat in your diet is like a magnet for bile. If there's no fat in your belly, not on your belly, but in your belly, if there's no fat in your belly from your diet, you are not pulling bile out of the liver, which means that you are not detoxing. So if you can't detox, all of that stuff is going to end up getting stored in your fat cell, which is one of the reasons why we have fat cells that they're not just fat, it's fat plus all the other trash that your body's storing because it can't get rid of. You turn into like a storage facility and ultimately dietary fat is the exit strategy for all of that stored garbage in your fat cells. So when you don't eat dietary fat, you're really doing yourself a disservice at detoxification number one but then number 2 you become this this massive storage facility and everybody's like well you should just eat less and exercise more right you should just work harder you lazy you lazy <laughs> doctor right and and it's not really about that it's about smarter and not harder. It's about working with your physiology, not just like abusing it and telling it what to do.
0: Perfect. So when we're talking dietary fats, you and I know there's good fats and bad fats, and there's certain things that are better for your body versus others. What are your suggestions as far as those healthier fats to consume?
1: Yeah, well, I'm a big proponent of a fat-based diet in the right situation for people. And And so if you have diabetes and all you do is eat fat, you're going to create a problem, right? However, if you don't have diabetes, if you are quote unquote metabolism normal, just slightly overweight, or maybe you're an athlete or something like that, if you do a fat-based diet, I would appreciate if 60 to 70% of your dietary fats are coming from plants. So that means things like avocado and coconut, et cetera. And being able to, to do that is going to give you a leg up uh, with your metabolism, number one. But then number two, you're going to have an opportunity to eat meat fats. Like I, I'm a big uh, steak lover. I like that, right? I'll eat the grisly part of a steak. But if you live on the grisly part of a steak, that's also a problem, right? So balance. So 60 to 70% plant fats would be ideal. And then 30% or so, 40, uh, 30 to 40%, you can have animal fat as well. And it's got to be clean. Stuff So like, you know, grass fed stuff, ideally, otherwise you're just eating the hormone that the, the animal ate as well.
0: And I'm glad you pointed that out because there is a huge difference when we're talking about the fat profiles of organic grass fed versus farm raised animals right. and that sort of thing. So that's a great thing to, to really point out to people. Let's talk about the testosterone a little bit because um, we're dealing, dealing with athlete or non-athlete. Testosterone mm-hmm. obviously is an important hormone, um, but we're talking about athletes and building muscle. Let's very important. If someone thinks they have low T's because their body's not storing it right, processing it right, etc., what are some things that they should be looking for nutrition-wise, lifestyle-wise, in order to make adjustments there?
1: Yeah, good question. the The thing with testosterone is is that uh, when it's low, it's usually low in a male for or a female for a protective mechanism purposes, right? So testosterone is a metabolic hormone which means that it helps you burn calories, you're gonna add muscle mass, all the stuff that's associated with it. But when it's low, your brain is super intelligent and your brain is allowing it to be low for a reason. And so that's the, the message that I would have, first and foremost, is, is if somebody thinks they have low testosterone, the question would be is why? Why? It's not just that your body is breaking down and, and you're destroying it, right? it's it's doing it for a reason. So here's what basically happens. When you eat food and you breathe in oxygen, your body mashes the two together and gives you some energy production called ATP. One of the side effects of that is inflammation. That creation process, a side effect is inflammation. When that inflammation starts to pile up and you can't vacuum it up quick enough, your brain would rather be sluggish and tired than dead. And so what happens is is your brain down-regulates or it slows down metabolism so that you're not creating so much inflammation anymore. And and so what that basically will happen, your thyroid oftentimes will get down-regulated, testosterone will be down-regulated, growth hormone profiles change. And so you become a softer, more sluggish version of yourself. And and that's not something that needs to stay that way. So usually what happens is, is athletes are like, oh, my my T is low, I have low T, I know it. I know it, and and they're either overtraining or eating crappy food, uh, and and that leads them down this road toward downregulating their testosterone. And so what happens is is they go to the doctor, they look at their testosterone profile, and the doctor says, "You have low T." Yeah, you have low T, but then nobody ever asks why. They just assume, "Wow, well, it's because you're 35 now, and <laughs> you know your testosterone's lower than when you were 18." And well, that's true, but the question is, is why it doesn't need to be that way. And typically it's that buildup of inflammation that build, it's called reactive oxygen species. It's that buildup of ROS inside of the cell that turns off your testosterone production. So one of the things that I find is, is far, be- far before anybody should be taking testosterone pellets or, you know, or otherwise is they should be working on something to vacuum up that, that reactive oxygen species, that inflammation. And those are antioxidants. And so if somebody is out there listening to this thinking, well, I might have low T, right? I'm an athlete. I'm not as strong as I used to be, or I don't have that vitality, the sex drive or otherwise. Look at antioxidants first to see if you can increase your hormone concentrations naturally before you replace them. Because once you replace them, what's happening is you're going to risk developing that resistance to it. And your brain that's trying to slow down your metabolism because of inflammation is going to fight you all the way. So you'll use testosterone for 90 days and feel good, and then all of a sudden it won't work anymore because your brain is catching up to you. And um, and it's really interesting when you choose to work with your physiology versus against. And uh, rather than thinking it's like a broken machine, think it's intelligent. What is it up to? Right, And trying to figure things out that way. So in a nutshell, that's the approach that I would look at with testosterone.
0: I actually, I did not realize that uh, relationship between the inflammation and the, the low T. Um, mm-hmm. And especially the overtraining aspect brings to mind an athlete I that I talked to recently was telling me, he went to his doctor, found he has low T and he is one that we have the biggest difficulty getting him to take a rest day. So in my mind, I'm kind of like brainstorming, <laughs> like, is this a relation now?
1: That's so, right. So if that if form. that gentleman jumps on the antioxidant bandwagon, you'd be utilizing things like CoQ10, resveratrol, maybe some glutathione if he's you know not sensitive to eggs or something like that. And, and what that'll do is that'll vacuum up the inflammation inside of the cell at the site of the mitochondria so that his mitochondria are now free to start producing more ATP processing that oxygen and glucose upregulate his energy production and his testosterone will turn up because of that.
0: That's awesome. That's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Let's talk about foods a little bit for decreasing inflammation because we can all, um, like you said, the CoQ10 and some of those, um, we can get those in supplement form. What are some foods that we can integrate into our daily routine, weekly routine to help decrease that inflammation in our bodies?
1: Absolutely. There are um, some interesting research articles that have been coming out lately about something called LPS, lipopolysaccharides. And they're these little things that are produced by your gut bacteria. And these LPS, if they are out of control, right, they're always going to be produced. But if they're out of control, if they're too high, it leads to something called leaky gut syndrome. And most individuals that have leaky gut syndrome don't actually know that they have it because they've always felt a little weird down there. And so what happens is that LPS gets into the bloodstream and it creates something called an endotoxin reaction. This endotoxin reaction is where we have inflammation systemically, total body inflammation, and it can show up as knee pain, uh, pain in your knuckles when you wake up in the morning and your hands are stiff shoulder issues, it can be brain fog, it can be weight gain for people. But basically, if we look at systemic inflammation, most of that is going to be attributed to your gut function. And really what the the research has been saying is, is that if you want to control your gut function or the inflammation produced by the bacteria in your gut, you can't eat a carbohydrate-rich diet. You can't do it. And the reason is, is that we create a, a super form Of lipopolysaccharides when we eat a lot of sugar or simple carbohydrates now I'm not a a proponent of no carbohydrates but I am a proponent of complex carbohydrates as it relates to a person's diet so when you look at controlling inflammation you you have to have dietary fat like we mentioned number one additionally complex carbohydrates so if you're gonna have like something with your dinner Pick a sweet potato rather than a white potato. Something that's a little bit more complex. The the sugar chains are a little bit longer. Um, if you're going to have bread, which I'm not a bread propon- proponent, but have something that is a complex, like a wheat bread, rather than uh, you know the the white Italian bread that you get at the grocery store, and start building toward having a larger variety of vegetables in your diet. And the vegetables, while they're mostly water and some phytonutrients, what they are are fiber that will clean out that lipopolysaccharide problem in your gut. They get into your, your intestines and they scrape the walls of your intestines on their way out in your stool and creates a cleanliness from those lipopolysaccharides. Your joint pain will go down, your inflammation, your systemic inflammation will go down. You'll feel better but also, as you mentioned, you'll upregulate that testosterone as well because the inf- total level of inflammation is going down. So, so it's super important to look at it through that lens, the lipopolysaccharides, and, and read about There's a ton of good information out there right now about LPS. Read about those things and how to control them. And it's a little unique for each person. But for the most part, if you have fiber, a probiotic, and you don't eat trashy food, right, you're going to be fine.
0: All comes down to not eating trashy food, I must say. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Let's change course a little bit. For people who don't have any current chronic diseases, um, hormone levels, for the most part, are normal. Um, I do want to get into cortisol a little bit later. But just for gaining strength, being a healthy athlete, what are just kind of some of the nutrition basics that you suggest for these people?
1: Yeah, number one, track, track what you're doing. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. Anytime I work with an athlete and every athlete thinks they know what they put in their body and they don't because they never, they never track. So keep a journal, right? Or one of these app, there are a ton of apps out there that will allow you to track your diet just by taking pictures of things and it'll calculate everything for you and and it's awesome, right? Do something like that, even if you do it for seven to 10 days, just to get a better understanding of what's going in and with somebody like yourself, it gives, uh, gives you an opportunity to be speaking intelligently, like accurately, rather than, well, sometimes this happens, you know, when you know what goes in your body, you're going to be better off. So that's the first thing, number one. Number two is try your best, right? To eat organic meats. Try your best. And, and that's huge. I know so many people that they, because organic meats are more expensive, they'll spend their money on organic vegetables, right? Rather than the organic meat, but you can wash your vegetables. It's really tough to wash a steak, right? From the inside out. <laughs> and so, when you look at, at that pick organic meat, if it comes down to picking one or the other, right, vegetables or meat, pick the organic meat every time. And the other, the other thing looking at this is, is try not to use products that have excess hormone in them. Hormone, for the person that does not detoxify appropriately, you just store it. You will absorb it, but you store it. And so um, I'm waiting for a study to come out as to like how much animal hormone are you storing in your physiology? Like I'm waiting for that study to come out because uh, it's going to be super eye-opening, not just to the athletic crowd, but to the crowd that is dealing with weight gain. And they're they're just casual people that work out, right? Casual weekend warrior (laughs) worker-outers. And and I'm excited for that to happen at some point here. So hormone-free would be the idea. Track your food. And then for the love of God, eat vegetables. (laughs) Somebody eat the vegetables. So it doesn't need to be a ton, right? It doesn't need to be a ton. But if you expose yourself to vegetables on a frequent basis, twice a day, that's gonna be more than most athletes do. Here are some of the benefits that you're gonna be experiencing. Number one, increased oxygen delivery to the specific cells that need it. So if you're doing squats, your quads are gonna get that oxygen. If we're talking about a cardiovascular workout, your heart and your lungs are gonna be working at a better capacity because you have a, a different oxygen delivery rate specifically because you're eating vegetables and not being you know knucklehead so number two when we look at adding carbo- like carbohydrates from vegetables into your diet as an athlete you are going to be cleaning up that lipopolysaccharide situation i mentioned in your gut okay this is huge those lipopolysaccharides have been tied to cardiovascular disease chronic disease like diabetes autoimmune conditions whether it be lupus or um uh, you know, thyroid, autoimmune thyroid disease, Hashimoto's, or otherwise cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, skin issues, joint destruction. Number one thing that you're going to find with uh, people that don't monitor their diet, don't use vegetables in their diet is those lipopolysaccharides are going to lead to joint destruction. So these are the people that end up having to go get stem cell therapy for their knees or knee replacement, that type of thing. Additionally, if you get soft tissue injuries, uh, as a result of working out, I'm telling you that is an adrenal gland problem and your adrenal glands are stressing out because they're not getting phytonutrients from your diet. So if you live on chicken nuggets and like honey, you're, you're going to be stuck in a situation where your joints are going to deteriorate faster than what you want. And then what happens is, is nobody's going to tell you that it's your diet that's killing you. And so you're going to feel like a victim and then you're going to be like, oh, that, that CrossFit programming really messed me up. No, it was your kitchen that messed you up, right? And, or that, you know, that therapist really messed me up when I was going through uh, rehab. And no, it's your diet that messed you up. And understanding that your soft tissue is only going to be able to build with the ingredients that you supply it. And if you don't supply it the ingredient, the building blocks of a healthy joint or healthy muscle tissue, like you can't expect it to do what it's supposed to. It's like giving a construction crew Legos and then being upset with the house they (laughs) built. Like it doesn't work that way.
0: (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) When talking about hormones with foods, what's your thoughts and recommendations when it comes to soy products?
1: Um, Good question. I would say that soy protein for most people, I'm going to tell them is okay, as long as their body is detoxing. The problem comes into play when we get a protein and the fat of soy together, like they're not separated. And and so we take a lot of this phytoestrogen uh, content, so estrogen in soy, that you take into your body. And if you don't detox from estrogens because you're not eating fat otherwise, you just store a ton of estrogen. And for females, you don't want to do that. Right. We talk about all the estrogen-based cancers, et cetera. For guys, you don't want to do that. As you age, you end up with prostate issues and and that's usually estrogenic in nature. And and so when we talk about using soy specifically, I think you really got to be conscious of how does your body deal with it. So one of the big misconceptions in the health industry right now is, is that a food is good for fill in the blank. Right. Like, oh, this is good for energy or this is good for weight loss well for who is the question right for who mm-hmm. and and so when you look at your own physiology your own health if you've been drinking soy milk and you can't lose weight probably get rid of the soy milk if you've been eating soy product or drink like having soy protein and and you're trying to move your health in the right direction but you can't just you just can't get over the hump change the product right find something that doesn't have hormone in it find something that you know isn't subsidized by the government that's a good rule of thumb by the way just in natural healthcare, if something's subsidized by the government, typically I'm going to look at that as, well, how come there's not enough consumer demand in order to take care of that industry, right? If it has to be subsidized, my question is, is why? And, and so ultimately organizing it, consumer demand typically follows science. And so once the science is there and consumer demand matches it, usually an industry is born the science is, is not in favor of giving little kids soy product for like a decade and then wondering why they're obese and don't feel well, which is what the case is, then, you know, i probably go a different route. So I'm not opposed to soy as long as your body is, is okay with detoxification.
0: Well, that makes sense. Let's go back to the adrenal stuff a little bit. So she's mentioned as far as a sign of having adrenal issues, adrenal dysfunction, whatever you want to call it, is frequent injuries. What are some other things people can look out for that their adrenals might be an issue and there needs to be some sort of nutrition changes to address that?
1: Absolutely. All right. So this is a message to all you crossfitters out there. Right. When you're laying on the floor and you stand up real quick and your blood pressure drops and you get a little like you see the stars, right? It's called <laughs> Yeah, you laughing because fun? you know what I'm talking about, right? What happens is when we, we get this, it's called orthostatic hypotension, right? When you stand up and all the blood drains out of your head and you kind of like the curtains come down a little bit, that's not normal. That's an adrenal gland situation that um, if it happens all the time, your adrenals are probably in need of some love. If it happens only when you, you know, right after you're working out, that's something that's a little bit more normal because of the demand you've placed on them, and then they'll catch up in their production of hormone. But orthostatic hypotension is a, a response where your, your adrenal glands are supposed to create a, a trigger where epinephrine or adrenaline is released and it squeezes your arteries so that we can maintain blood pressure, right? So that in a rudimentary expression, that's what it looks like. And and so what we want is we want you to have normal blood pressure all the time, not just when you're laying down, right? And so when you sit up or stand up real quick and the blood drains out of your head, that's a sign that you should probably look at your adrenal glands. I'm not telling you to stop working out, I'm telling you to probably rehab them a little bit. How you rehab them are with things that are called adaptogens. And there's specific herbs that you can find in the marketplace. There are a ton of companies that have this stuff. But adaptogens, what they do is they will promote proper function of your uh, adrenal hormone output. So if you have high function, they'll lower it. If you have a low function, they raise it. It's one of the few things in nature that will do whatever is needed. So kind of cool there. Additionally, there's a structure in your brain called the hippocampus that helps regulate uh, how your adrenals produce hormone. And that hippocampus responds very well to normal sleep patterns. Number one, Uh, I would say that's probably the biggest killer of adrenal function in the United States today. And then additionally, that hippocampus responds to movement. So if you're somebody that's stuck in an office cubicle all day, your adrenal glands—they are not going to like you uh, after you know two or three months of that. And so, being able to get up and move and and get out and exercise or go for a walk—something that is not even demanding from a metabolic scenario—is going to be the best type of exercise for your adrenal glands. Um, additionally, rest days, man—you got to have a rest day. And if you're constantly grinding. Like that's the thing, right, is is we get like this sense of reward or accomplishment out of the grind and being able to say, yeah, 10 days in a row, I'm on it right now, 10 days, or being able to say, uh, yeah, my last day off, can't remember my last day off, and like there's something socially rewarding to talk about that but I'm telling you your adrenal glands are gonna be shriveled little raisins at some point and um, and you got to take care of those guys so um, I just want to note also there's a thing in the fitness world right now and in natural health care where people are talking about adrenal fatigue and adrenal fatigue is super rare like last year I bet I looked at 5,000 cases and I maybe have seen adrenal fatigue I can count them on both hands here less than 10 cases out of 5,000 and, and the reason is is that adrenal fatigue is a misnomer, right? Uh, the testing that was popular in the 90s, early 2000s, and even up until today, they're telling you, oh, look, your your cortisol is low in adrenal hormone. Your cortisol is low. And it's not actually that your cortisol is low, it's that your free cortisol, the cortisol in your bloodstream is low, right? And cortisol is a fat storing; It's like a a fat-based hormone again. Your brain will store excess cortisol in fat cells, right? So just the same thing as we talked about testosterone and insulin before. And so what happens is that you look like you have low cortisol and really your brain is trying to protect you from too much cortisol, right? So too much cortisol looks like leaky gut syndrome chronic inflammation. It decreases uh, the integrity of your ligaments and your your tendons. And so when we look at overtraining, um, you feel the effects of low cortisol, even though you don't actually have it, you're just storing the rest of it. So I just want to throw that out there because low cortisol is actually super rare. And um, it's more of a a hormone sequestering that takes place. And so if you're seeing a functional medicine doctor or a therapist or whatever, I want to make sure that you're you're looking at things the, the right way there.
0: Awesome. I'm glad glad you clarified that difference because we do hear that adrenal fatigue or at least I hear that adrenal fatigue Mm -hmm. term quite a bit and it is definitely different than just having some dysfunction going on. Uh, Talking about the cortisol a little bit more, how does sleep affect cortisol levels or more so how does lack of sleep affect cortisol levels?
1: Yeah, a lack of sleep is interesting because um, when people have lack of sleep and they're tired when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they reach for is either like you know, their energy drink or their coffee, that type of thing, or their five-hour energy. And what happens is the caffeine in those things and the other nutrients, they stimulate a response that epinephrine or adrenaline is supposed to stimulate for you, right? So when you have an adrenaline and cortisol are both created in the adrenal gland and, and they tend to mirror each other. Adrenaline is a short-term, like a short-acting situation. And cortisol is more of a long-term hormone, it's so slower-acting and so, when we have a response where you wake up and you're tired because you only went to bed at 1 a.m., you got up at 5 to go work out or go to work or whatever you're doing, uh, your body does not have the appropriate time frame in order to downregulate your cortisol production and then upregulate your cortisol production. So it's such a slow-moving hormone that it requires time. So if you wake up and the eye, the light hits your eyes in the morning and you're out doing your thing your brain is going to produce cortisol at a a different rate. It's going to command your adrenal glands to produce cortisol at a different rate than it would if you were resting. Now, the reason this is important is because you need these hormones, both epinephrine and cortisol for tissue repair. And that tissue repair, that rest and digest is supposed to be happening while you're sleeping. So if you short circuit that you're always short circuiting your rest and digest, right? There's a reason you don't do three CrossFit workouts a day right? Because you know that your body needs rest, right? You know that while you're awake, but, but while you're sleeping, it's even more important, okay? Because we're getting into this, um, your brain creates these different electrical patterns while you're sleeping versus awake. And those electrical patterns are actually what allow your physiology to heal. It's really cool how it works, right? So um, when you, if you sleep appropriately, you will find that with less work, your workouts are better, with less time in the gym, right? Your strength improves, your times improve, whatever it is that you're you're measuring, and and that's a little weird to say it that way. There's a diminishing returns. Obviously, if you never go to the gym, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but if you are always in the gym, you also will break down your physiology faster than you would otherwise. And so that's why um, if you ever watch like competitions, CrossFit competitions, you'll see some of these elite athletes sleeping in the corner in between you know, their sets. What they're doing is they're allowing their brain to get into a different electrical pattern. And that electrical pattern sends a signal to their muscles to change the hormone concentrations at the site of the muscle. And so they wake up 20, 30 minutes before they're going to go do their next, um, their next workout competition and they get after it. And then they're going to go lay, lay down and meditate or fall asleep again. And what they're doing is they're just trying to make sure that they're allowing that rest and digest in between sets. Now imagine you don't do that for your six or eight hours at night. If you don't do that and you're just constantly stimulating your nervous system in a way that it's not supposed to, um, you are going to be behind the eight ball at some point, right? It is going to catch up to you. You see it time and time again. And then you end up in somebody's office like mine where they're like, let's take a look at your adrenals. We'll see what happens.
0: You kind of mentioned it in passing and so I'm curious between competitions between events or even just on a daily basis sleep well obviously we all need to sleep at night but like during the day for if you want to get some rest sleep versus just kind of laying still eyes closed meditating that sort of thing are there some similarities there or are you still not getting the electrical change wave change difference there are
1: some similarities there, but it takes practice. So, um, some people use the word meditation, some people relaxation, whatever it is. Some people pray. What I would say is, is whatever you jive with, right? Like whatever you are compatible with, do that. The problem is, is that most people are unskilled in being able to calm their thoughts. And if you can't calm your thoughts, you're not going to be putting yourself into a different electrical pattern from a nervous system perspective. Mm -hmm. So there's a study I read recently where they, what they did is they took these, these lab rats and they put these lab rats in uh, a closed confined space, right? So think office cubicle, right? So they put these lab rats in a office cubicle and what happened is, is their stress response went up just from being contained their aggression went up just from being contained they developed leaky gut syndrome just from being contained and they developed joint inflammation just from being contained right they weren't contained all day right but they were contained in like a cubicle setting and so what happened is is that these these rats started to develop all of these symptoms associated with it and and so what they did is they translated this study from a rat study into the a, a person based study and they found the same thing Right, you would have a stress response that goes up. You have uh, leaky gut syndrome develops, and all this stuff. Your aggression goes up when you are sitting in a contained space on a daily basis, and the reason is is that you are not moving, but your mind is moving. Okay, your mind is moving. It's a perceived workload or a perceived stress load. So the same thing happens when you're at home. If let's say you live in an apartment or you live, um, you're you're laying in your bed at night in a room right? That's oftentimes the size of an office for people. Okay. And you don't control your thought life. What happens is is you are still stimulating these stress responses over and over and over again, because you're, you're not allowing your mind to be downregulated or to be controlled. This is why people love the outdoors, right? Because your mind may wander, right? But you, your perceived stress is lower, right? I went for a walk in the woods is different than I went for a walk in my closet on a treadmill right? <laughs> like those are two different types of stressors uh-huh. even though your mind was dealing with the same stuff in both situations okay so when you have somebody that can't quiet their mind they're not going to be able to put themselves into position electrical patterns to change now when you're sleeping it's usually induced right? It's induced. And so uh, as you sleep, you'll get into different layers or levels of, of these electrical patterns. It's different when somebody uses sleep medication versus falling asleep naturally. And and so that's a, a difference in the rest and digest the healing that happens there. But additionally, if you have somebody that is well trained at moving from a, a conversation pace like this into completely oblivious of their surroundings, and they can get into that spot where they're not thinking of nothing. They're concentrating on what they like, what they want, what they're trying to accomplish, etc. But they're completely focused on it, and they're not worried about, you know, the argument they had with their sister yesterday, or you know, what their boss might think, you know, that type of thing. When they're able to calm their mind into a spot um, that allows that electrical change, it's a skill that's developed over time, and it takes practice, and is super annoying. But once you're able to develop that skill, it's a, it's pretty life-changing from a stress response perspective.
0: I would agree. Um, I actually, probably about the past year and a half, I started doing meditation. I initially started to say it was like brain breaks during my day, but then really yeah. turned them into more uh, meditation type things. And it's been really helpful for me, for my function, for sure.
1: Absolutely. And I think you'll see that across the board for most people, as long as they're not taking suggestions from Somebody leading them through a meditation that are, they're incompatible with, right? It's it's one of those things that I think is has universal benefit for
0: people. Definitely. I want to go back to the sleep thing a little bit more. Um, just thinking of the people who either have difficulty falling asleep or difficulty staying asleep. What are some uh, tips, whether it's lifestyle changes, nutrition changes that they can do in order to help with either the falling asleep or the deep sleep?
1: Absolutely. The first thing is, and this is going back to it again, control the lipopolysaccharide situation in your gut. That's number one. Number two, water during the day, right? If you can drink close to half your body weight in ounces of water during the day, like if you weigh 200 pounds, try to approach 80 to 100 ounces of water. That will help. Additionally. If we talk about calming down at the end of the day, get rid of the television after dinner. Biggest thing that I find right mm-hmm. there. Right? The problem is, is that that's when everybody spends time with their significant other, Netflix. And when you <laughs> spend time with Netflix after dinner, right? what's happening is, is you're stimulating your brain, you're programming your brain um, from a hormone perspective to continue to be upregulated. So like when the sun goes down, it goes down, for a reason, right? Like your brain should also be participating at the same rate. Like sun comes up, your brain should wake up. Sun goes down, your brain should chill out. And, and so if you can follow that type of a lifestyle, that would be one thing. The next thing that I would say is, is get out and go for a walk. Lack of oxygen does a massive damage to your ability to turn your central nervous system off at night. Lack of oxygen, and um, and it's super important. So if you think about like we talk about food, people get in starvation mode, and then they eat a lot of food, and what do they do? They store it all. They're not going to burn any of that. It's the same thing with oxygen and your brain. If your brain is dealing with a lack of oxygen all day, right, and then um, you know you want it to go to sleep at night, it's not going to do that, right? It's going to maintain status quo ongoing, and we don't want it to. If you give it a lot of oxygen, take out for a walk consistently your brain is going to be able to get into that rest and digest mode much more frequently. Those are huge. And so, and then there are a couple of other herbal teas and stuff like that that we'll use with some people and it makes significant changes like sleepy time tea. You can get that at any grocery store. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty cool. Melatonin is another one that's pretty popular. And the problem with melatonin is it's an immune stimulant. So if you genetically Like 40% of the population stimulates their immune system with melatonin and it's a bad thing for you. You just got to check it out for yourself, right? What you'll notice is joint pain. Uh, Sometimes people develop like clogged ears. Like they feel like they have an ear infection, stuff like that. Headaches. And it's strictly because your immune system is being stimulated with melatonin.
0: That's interesting. I didn't realize the melatonin effect on the immune system. We'll kind of start wrapping it up. Um, Let's just go like four... Actually, we're going to go two directions with this. or someone dealing with low energy, just not feeling right, not sure why. Kind of, what are just some simple things they can look as far as their own nutrition and lifestyle that they can start to address on their own, maybe without going to a functional medicine person.
1: Right. The two things uh, would be metabolic health and sleep health. Those are the two two top things, right? Because if you come to me with no no diagnosis. That's where you're going to start anyway, <laughs> right? So you and you can do that at home. Um, sleep health number one is practice turning down your day, winding down all the technology and the stuff right? by seven o'clock. If you want to go to bed by nine thirty or ten, okay, that would be number one. Okay, number two is metabolic health. What about metabolic health? Drink your water. Get rid of some of the grains in your diet. So if you go grain free for seven to ten days, you're going to change your life. Okay you'll change your life. So that means no pastas, no breads, no potatoes, none of this stuff. Okay. No wheat products, no corn. If you do that for seven to 10 days and you literally just eat meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds and a little fruit, you're going to be golden. Okay. So that's, that's number one. Uh, or from a, a, a dietary perspective a metabolic hygiene perspective, those two things combined, I, in my estimation will handle for the average person, about 60 to 70% of all complaints that you could possibly have. Okay. 60 to 70%. And that's a lot, right? Most people don't want to do that because most people are not interested in lifestyle change. They're interested in additions to their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want to get rid of Netflix. I'll just take sleeping medication. (laughs) Right. Or like, I don't want to get rid of, um, you know, beer and pizza. I'll just use some thermogenics from GNC that are going to cause me to have higher metabolism. And so you don't have to get rid of beer and pizza forever. But what you do is if you create habits that are like beer and pizza are an event rather than a habit, like a process. Um, if it's a, a Saturday thing rather than a odd day thing or even day thing, what happens is, is you create space for the things you love and your lifestyle without those things wrecking your health. And, and I think that's a massive step in the right direction for most people. So if you can control the hygiene or the habit situation, that's, that's where it's at. hundred percent.
0: Cool. And then for the person who for the most part is healthy, thinks they're healthy, doesn't really notice anything crazy going on with their body. What are some things that they should keep an eye out for, or maybe some tests they can do just to kind of see how healthy their body really is?
1: Cognitive function, number one, is I think the biggest sign of physiology change that we don't obey, right? Nobody participates in it. So if you're tired during the day, you will see a physical manifestation of that later on. It might be a blood sugar dysregulation issue. It might be weight gain. It might be, you know, leaky gut syndrome, et cetera. But if you are tired during the day, that's a warning sign, right? So, cognitive function number one. If you find yourself missing words, or find yourself, uh, you know, telling the same stories over and over, you know, that that's that's a huge issue as well. If you find yourself asking the same people about the same things all the time, like, oh, how's how's your grandkids' hockey game, you know, or like, how is that race? And and you're looking at them going, the race that was like six months ago. You're asking me about the race still? What in the world? That person has something going on in their physiology that they're not identifying because usually people don't identify changes in their health until there's a massive problem, until they have a limp, until they can't move their arm above their head, until they have headaches like five days a week instead of three days a week, you know? And and so looking at this, look at your cognitive function as the barometer to your physical health. It usually happens in your brain first. And so I just throw that out there kind of scary right because most people don't want to look at that but you know you can rectify that situation as well
0: awesome well thank you so much everything you gave today was very fascinating and i think a lot of people can pull a lot of good information out of it whether they truly want to make changes or not is up to them but you at least gave some great information on things to start looking at and start addressing in their life that can be simple things to address if someone wants to In contact with you, or just kind of look into more information that you have. How can they do that?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. You can find me at drbradwatts.com, drbradwatts.com. I'm not currently taking new patients, but I do have a network of providers all over the country if you are interested in a functional medicine doctor. Additionally, um, the Nutrition Hero podcast is something that I put together, and um, we do probably two podcasts a month with different doctors in the industry, providers, etc and pretty fun, fascinating individuals that I get to interview. And it's really, it's been a fun project. So those are the two places that you can find
0: me. Awesome. Well, Brad, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on with me today.
1: Absolutely. is awesome and you do a great job. So keep doing what you're doing.
0: <laughs> thank you. And that concludes this episode of Highly Functional. I truly appreciate the time you spend to listen to myself and my colleagues share with you how to become highly functional individuals and how to be highly functional individuals if you learned great information from this i would love for you to share it with your friends and help them become highly functioning individuals as well until next time go out and be highly functional